Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and I'm so excited to release our episode this week as I had the unique opportunity to sit down and have a discussion with one of my edu heroes, Professor John Hattie, who's been described as the world's most influential academic. Dr. Hattie, a professor at the University of Melbourne, Australia, is a global leader on education effectiveness, and his extensive research is the world's largest evidence base on what works best in schools to improve learning. For Hattie, it's not about how you teach, it's about what works best. His book, Visible Learning, is the culmination of more than 25 years of examining and synthesizing more than 1,600 meta-analysis, comprising more than 95,000 studies involving 300 million students. So his body of work is truly remarkable as he dives into effect size and what works best in our school system. So you certainly want to check out his website at visiblelearning.com. There you can find all the most recent data on effect size. And this is a great conversation, folks. It was one of those uh, very proud moments for me to sit down and talk with Professor Hattie and learn a little bit more about his effect size research and how we can use that data to improve our schools. So I hope you enjoy this episode. My conversation with John Hattie begins right now. Hi, I'm Batsheva Frankel from Overthrowing Education, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Reimagined Schools podcast, the show that shines light on positive leadership, technology integration, and innovative solutions to transform our schools. Featuring many of the nation's top educators, tune in each week to hear from best-selling authors, popular speakers, and thought leaders throughout K-12 education as we continue the conversation on how to create better schools for kids. From the podcast studio in Georgetown, Kentucky, here's your host, Dr. Greg Goins. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Have another great show for you this week. It's a tremendous honor to bring in someone who's been described as possibly the world's most influential academic. He really needs no introduction. Uh, Dr. John Hattie's with us. How are you, John? I'm good, Greg. It's great to be with you today. When you hear something like that, what's your reaction? The most influential academic, maybe of, of our time. Oh, look, my eyes roll at that. Um, it's nice to have people want to read your work because you could spend your whole life as an academic and that may not happen. So when that happens, that's the case. You know, the true central office in any part of our business is in the classroom. You know, I've been a big fan of your work for a long time and I, I want to jump into visible learning, you know, something that you've been, you know, you spent the last 15, 20 years on. So let's kind of start there. If you can kind of unpack uh, the visible learning platform you know, it really kind of begins with the research that you've done, and then it moves into the role of the teacher and, and what the student brings to the table. And I'll kind of let you take it from there. Yeah, it's, it, it kind of has been a hobby for me my whole career, because my career has not been in the area of visible learning. It's a young statistician, uh, measurement person. And it was the observation that everybody I met in this business knew what the answer was 
to improving kids' learning? And the answers were so dramatically different and all over the place. And it just didn't make sense that we didn't have a corpus of knowledge, a corpus of understanding. And I wanted to move the, the dial from asking what works to what works best, to asking about relative decisions we make. And I also wanted to, as it turns out, change the debate that we have about how we teach. And quite frankly, Greg, I don't care less how any teacher teaches. I think it's been a massive distraction to ask that question. I don't care how you teach. I care about the impact of your teaching. And of course, that begs the question what you mean by impact, but that's the right question. So it's those kind of shifts that I wanted to have a, a chance to try and move that dial. And that's what I'm trying to do. And, you know, probably your legacy is going to be the, the Hattie effect size. And I guess that's a blessing and a curse. The blessing is that you've provided so many great avenues to better teaching and better learning in the classroom. But, you know, forgive me, but maybe the curse is people are looking at the, the effect size completely wrong in terms of a lot of districts think if they could just check off those top three or four things, it's a silver bullet and all their problems are going to be resolved. And I, I'll let you speak to this, but I really believe your intent was really much more holistic than that. Oh, look, you're right, Greg. Um, like we wrote a, a, a gold paper last year um, about all the criticisms we could find of visible learning, and close to 80% of them are about the misunderstanding about effect sizes. And in fact, just before this, um, I was listening to a podcast by another very eminent person, totally and utterly again misinterpreting effect sizes. And he was arguing that effect sizes are not causes, and they're not. They're correlations in many cases. And then he was arguing his direction and his causality is the right one and mine's the wrong one. And you think you missed the point. And that 70 to 80% who misinterpret effect sizes, I bet most of them have never read the book. It was about the nuances underneath. The data is just the data. It was that interpretation of what they mean. And yeah, I take responsibility for the league table. Of, and I, probably, I wished I'd never done that in many ways. It worked. It got attention. So... Yes, I'm happy I did it. But that's why I moved the discussion to know thy impact. They are probability statements, the research. If you take one of those high probability interventions and, and you implement it badly and the next person implements it well, of course you're going to get a different effect. And so that notion, and the other part of it that I think is missing is that I've been summarizing the research that's out there Teachers have an incredible amount of evidence as they walk around the room, look at kids' artifacts, they look at kids' tests and assignments. And I want to bring all that together as part of how teachers and school leaders make interpretations about the data to improve their impact. So, yeah, it's a bit more than ticking things off. It's trying to get at those big messages. You know, I'm a former school superintendent. I spent 15 years uh, as a K-12 superintendent before moving into higher ed myself. And, and one of the things that always really bothered me was this idea of data-driven decisions. And you are a statistician by trade. You work in that measurement world. And it's not that I don't believe that evidence is critical to change. But I think too many times people in my position well, automatically were looking at test scores or some kind of assessment data to try to figure out what's broken and what needs to be fixed. And, and really, you've created the, the avenue for for better teaching and learning with the effect size research. Uh, is, is that a fair assessment? Look, Greg, I've got, I've got a, a third of a billion students in my sample. Surely the days of evidence are over. The days of interpreting evidence are here. 
And that's the shift that certainly the schools we work with, you know, we say to them a million times, it's not about the data, it's about the interpretations and triangulating that interpretations and critiquing those interpretations. And most importantly, having actions from them. So I'm not gonna resolve from evidence, and I'm sure as a superintendent, you would too, but data is a medium, it's not the end point. And so yes, uh, get past the data. And, and as you know, schools are awash with data, never interpret it. And if we got rid of everything we didn't interpret, wouldn't schools be a better place? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, by last check, I think there were now 252 influences and, pro and programs that correlate to student achievement on your website for effective um, size. And so I, I think about that, and I'm glad it's there. I mean, it, it's very helpful. And it's amazing that you've done all the research to kind of provide the, the North Star for all of us to get there. But I, I think another thing that um, I know maybe frustrates you at times is that 98% of everything we do in the classroom works. So it's difficult for people really to take a deep dive to figure out what they need to do to really create a stronger pedagogy in the classroom. No, I'd turn that figure on its head. You're right, 98% does work, which means we as educators have to stop saying that we can improve learning because everyone can. And what amazes me is the large number, and I would say across the US, 60 to 70% of teachers in schools where kids are gaining more than a year's growth for a year's input already. And that excellence is all around us. And I want to highlight the notion that we have excellence out there. And I want to, again, move the debate away from what we do in education so often as we look for failure to try and fix it. Because, oh, wow, do we have u butte solutions? And I instead want to see if there's courage to identify success and upscale it. And suddenly you have a different equation. And like take COVID teaching at the moment. I don't think there's been a time in the history, certainly of my life, where parents have more esteem for teachers than they've ever had. They've realized teachers have expertise they don't have. And that's what I see all the time in schools. And I want teachers to stand up and say, our profession is based on expertise. We are having remarkable success and we need to get more of our educators being part of that marvelous success. So I think your analogy of the North Star is right. I think we know what success looks like. There's plenty of it out there. Quite frankly, sometimes we lack the courage to do this job. It's much easier to talk about the distractions. Yeah, and you know, I, I've had a lot of guests come on my, my podcast and we're always talking about change this, change that. There always is a silver bullet for whatever's gonna happen next. Uh, things like design thinking, deeper learning strategies, project-based learning. But I find it fascinating as you go down the uh, list of effect size, things like problem-based learning, inquiry-based learning are really below the average and really don't have the impact that personally I thought they did before uh, our conversation tonight. Yeah, but again, it's a good illustration of what we're just, you were just saying before, Greg. Project-based learning has a very low effect size. So the right question is, why does it have a right effect size? It's not. The conclusion's not, let's abandon it. And certainly I've been working and I've been doing a lot of work on a lot of those below zero, below average effects. And problem-based learning is a very good example. Like it turns out that, for example, in first-year medicine, problem-based learning has a zero to negative effect size. In fourth year medicine, it has an effect size of 0.4.5. And so I went back through all the school-based, project-based learning and reclassified them. Same thing. If kids don't have sufficient content, when they go into problem-based learning, it has a low effect. And the biggest problem we have is those religious zealots out there that 
you said may come onto your program who preach problem-based, preach discovery. It's a matter of when you use it. There's a right time to use it and there's a wrong time. And so often it's employed for every kid, regardless of whether they have the content. So once again, you divide the equity dramatically in the wrong ways. And so don't think because problem-based and inquiry is low. Um, yes, I do argue it is low at the moment because we've implemented it far too broadly at the wrong time. But that doesn't mean to say it's not powerful. It's incredibly powerful at the right time. Yeah, and I've also heard you say that, that one of the, the reasons it's not as effective, and you just kind of touched on that, if you can expand a little bit, is that we often introduce it way too early in the learning process. Yeah, and I think that almost needs to be a readiness test to go into problem-based learning about what content. Like if you think of it in terms of the surface level, the knowing that, the content, the vocabulary, the ideas, and the deep, the relationship, the transfer, we are arguing that there are different teaching methods that capitalize on both equations. Like, yes, some problem-based people would argue they can teach the content through problem-based learning. It just doesn't seem to happen. Take direct instruction. It's very good with the surface level. Yes, it can do the deep, it's just harder. Why don't we do both? Why don't we do direct instruction to build up the content, then switch to problem-based? And so I think, you know, if any listeners out there want an excellent PhD or master's topic, bring together different teaching methods. Like take think pair share What about no-think-pair-share? Um, and how do we bring, and quite frankly, we need to think in terms of differentiated teaching to try and get at these powerful notions at the right time. Yeah, and I, I think that's well said. And, and, you know, also as you go down the list and you think about what good teaching looks like, you know, we have about a five or six month sample, depending on what part of the world you live in, for remote learning. And as a researcher yourself, that, that, that probably creates some exciting new opportunities to dive into some of the research. What research is out there on remote learning currently and, and what kind of gets the wheels turning in your mind as to, you know, what you can look for down the road that might help us if we're ever kind of in this situation again or if we want to continue uh, and expand things like blended learning and web-based learning? Well, firstly, you know, distance learning has been around a long time. <laughs> There's been 22 meta-analyses on distance learning. Average effect size 0.14. Now, what that means is that it doesn't matter whether it's distance or in class. Good teaching in class can be good teaching online. The 0.14 says that, if anything, distance has some advantages. And right at this moment of COVID, we have to exploit those advantages. For example, students are more likely online to talk about what they don't know and what they don't understand. And teachers online are more likely to switch from talking and lots of talking to triage, listening to students, understanding what they don't know. We need to exploit that advantage. Yeah, and, and I think another piece that's personal for me, and again, I, I think as you look, and I'm even making the mistake now in the conversation of kind of picking and choosing things on the list and kind of asking you why or why not. But as someone that works in a ed leadership program, training future principals and superintendents, I was a little surprised that the role of the school principal and school culture both didn't have a greater impact. Uh, I think they're both at point three two. Um, so as I think about working with future school principals with this visible learning mindset, you know, what do they need to be doing and how can they use some of those concepts to really improve teaching in their school? Um, think of the 
teacher leaders here, school leaders, yeah, effect size around about 0 0.3, 0 0.4. But when you then look at principals who are much more instructional leaders that worry about the impact their teachers are having on kids, compared to teachers who are more transform transformational, you get a dramatic difference. And so let it be said that school leaders can have a really positive effect on their teachers through to their kids. And certainly at this time of COVID teaching, the way in which the teachers, school leaders build collaboration within the school, get teachers to share their problems and issues, have high trust in the staff room so they can bring issues, you get quite a powerful effect of principals. And, you know, we, let's shift gears a little bit and go back to talking about the role of the teacher. I've, I've had a lot of guests on. You know, we sit here and we talk for a while about how the role of the teacher has changed. Uh, you know, talk about student-centered classrooms and those kind of things. Um, you know, as you think about um, the role of the teacher, again, it, it's not what they teach uh, or necessarily the methodology. It's how do they feel they're impacting the learning? And I, I know you talk a lot about that. Impact is, is a big word and, and a big outcome for a classroom teacher. Yeah, and, and I want particularly school leaders to have robust discussions in the classroom, what is meant by impact? Like when I use the phrase, a year's growth for a year's impact, you know, what does that actually mean? Like, are you prepared to bring along a piece of child's work, say now and three months later, and have a discussion about whether that's three months growth? Pretty challenging question. Are you prepared to put the test scores and look what a year's growth in your school looks like? Because if a teacher has an expectation where a year's growth is very, very small, and one down the corridor thinks a year's growth is quite a large effect, those teachers will both be incredibly successful. And so we do need to have that discussion. And by impact, I, I the three impact. Impact about what? Impact for whom? How many kids are getting that impact? And impact about how much? Because as we've commented, just getting an impact is not good enough. And those are the questions because it's about those expectations that teachers have in their mind that make the difference. So you could bring in the most best gee whiz program in the world into your school but if it doesn't affect how those teachings teachers are thinking about what they mean by impact it's going to have very little difference and you know i think a really important piece to all this is, is you're a huge advocate and a cheerleader for classroom teachers we have some great teachers out there doing some amazing things and i don't want people to misconstrue uh, some of the conversation we're having, thinking that everyone's doing a terrible job and that we need to completely reinvent the wheel and do things completely different because there's there's really good teaching out there. But you said something in a recent interview that really kind of stuck with me. Uh, you said every kid deserves a great teacher, not by chance, but by design. So can you you kind of elaborate on that thought a little bit? Yeah, and there is there are great teachers out there and certainly – if anything, I want those teachers as a profession to stand up and says that greatness is based on their expertise. There is an expertise in teaching and we need to privilege that. Um, you know, certainly think that the biggest problem is that courage to actually privilege that. We have this myth that all teachers are equal. Now, no kid in the world believes that because they know that's not true. But that doesn't mean to say we have bad teachers. It means we have variants. And that variability within a school is the biggest issue in our business. And you know, the visible learning story is this simple, Greg. Have you the courage to reliably identify those teachers in your school that are having that high impact, form a coalition of success around them, and invite the others to join? It's that simple. But it's really hard to enact. We all know the reasons, but that's what we do when we work in schools. We don't want to leave any of those teachers in that zone below average behind. We want them part of the solution. 
but we do need to privilege expertise. And like here in my country, we've actually legislated standards for teachers, and we have four levels, graduate, proficient, highly accomplished and lead, highly accomplished and lead, hard to get, a bit like national board, and we are using them as part of input into our policy space. Very powerful, saying that we have this expertise. And I'm a great cheerleader of our profession because I've been a beneficiary of it, but we see so much excellent teaching around, and I just want to say, see how we can actually finally stand up and say, we have that. I know it's very easy to teach a bash. Oh my goodness, I don't want to go there either. But the opposite. Sometimes we're not very good at the steaming excellence. Yeah, and I've also heard you talk a little bit about uh, the teaching profession as a whole and more specifically uh, how teachers are prepared. You know, you take an electrician, for an example. They work with an apprentice, and they go through an apprenticeship period, and they learn from a master skilled worker. And, and in education, it's, it just doesn't make a lot of sense a lot of times. You know, they'll do an 8 to 12-week student teaching um, um, you know, placement, and then we give them the key and the, and the grade book, and we hope that they're miraculous teachers. It just doesn't work that way, and I don't understand why uh, education has to be different than the medical field or any other trade in which you're really teaching kids. Yeah, like, obviously, having been a dean and a teacher education uh, university for a lot of my career, I'm very aware of the, the, the difficulties in the teacher education space, and we all have a thousand reasons why so. But I'm not interested in that. There are some really top-notch teacher education programs, and many of them, as you're hinting at, have residency programs. Um, it's that relationship between the university and the school that often is the biggest issue, certainly for the students. Like when the students come away and say, I learned more in the school than I did at university, you know the university's got a problem, as does the school. Um, we go to the English, where England had a period of time where they gave the funding for teacher education to the schools. It was abysmal in terms of what happened. Uh, so we have to be careful about that. So I'm keen that we get much more relationships and I'd like to see teacher education kind of like medicine, a six or eight year program, whereas the first few years are done within a university, then there's a residency program. Um, and it's kind of like the Singapore model where they don't get, in a sense, accredited to a few years after they're being in a school. Um, and very <laughs> tongue in cheek here, if we then put up a list of all the students who finally got accredited and attached them back to the universities, those universities would fix their act very, very quickly. Uh, so I think there are ways in which we can improve our teacher education. Like at the moment, almost half as much as you learn as a teacher is in the first year in a class. Half as much again in the second year. Unfortunately, it's flat after that. We need to see teacher education as a continuing professional learning. Like you use medicine. They call their work practice. We don't, we assume it's over when you finish teacher education. It's not, it's just beginning. And so how do you get that more seamless relationship between what happens before the students come to a class in a university, which I'm a fan of, and then how do you make that seamless transition so that they continue to learn? And you know, it's also interesting that most superintendents and most principals specifically, they can identify who the top two or three teachers are in their building. It doesn't take very long because it's, it's quite obvious. Why can't we lift those folks up and say, hey, Mrs. Johnson is fantastic. She does X, Y, and Z. Why can't we all go down and watch her teach and maybe model some of the really good things Miss Johnson does instead of having a, let's have an after-school professional development and hope that something sticks. Well, 
two reasons, Greg. First, firstly, you're right. You can identify the best teachers and so can the kids. And that triangulation is powerful. But I think it's a sin to go into a teacher's class and watch them teach. Because all you end up doing is teaching like them in the sense as you think they're doing it, but you're not getting at what matters. It's not how Mrs. Johnson teaches that matters, it's how she thinks during her teaching, which often you don't see. And I would argue that you don't go into a class and watch a teacher teach, you go into a class and watch the impact that teacher has on kids. Watch the kids and see that impact. And so that's a big difference. And so that's why I'm saying that we've got to stop talking about how we teach. It isn't how Mrs. Johnson teaches. I could emulate her to the millisecond what she does. But if I don't have that right evaluative way of thinking, if I'm not my biggest critic, if I don't walk into the class and say, my job here today is to evaluate my impact, I'm not gonna be working like Mrs. Johnson. And I've done a lot of work with the Mr. Johnsons around the world and the difference is not what they do. It is how they think. And so I'm with you. I want Mrs. Johnson to think aloud. And like on our AIDSOR website, we've now got lots of videos up there, hundreds of videos where you can press a button and hear Mrs. Johnson talking, thinking as she's teaching. And you can also hear how the kids are thinking as they're learning. And that's what I want to bring to the fore a lot more. So yes, if Mrs. Johnson and sometimes the Mrs. Johnsons of the world come to the staff room and have their cup of tea and want to go back and indulge in their passion. Sometimes it's very hard to get them to think about it, but that's our job, is to privilege that way of thinking. Yeah, that's very well said, and I guess that's why we don't do what I just kind of laid out for you, because there's a better way of doing it. So I think that was that was well articulated. So it's been a great conversation and it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I want to respect your time, but I do want to give you a closing thought. You know, we do have a lot of superintendents, principals, and teachers that listen to the podcast on a regular basis. As they're thinking about how to improve their own practice, you know, what advice do you have for them, especially during this, this, this remote learning time in which we're in the middle of this pandemic? Well, here, here in Australia, we have eight months into the pandemic because we started the COVID came at the start of our school year so we have a lot of experience now how to do this and so my comment to a superintendent is that this is the golden ticket I know there's sickness I know there's unemployment I know all those things but this is the golden ticket to dramatically change the old grammar of schooling to a new syntax where you can actually have increased impact you can listen much more to students thinking aloud you can work with your teachers that they can bring to the staff room common problems without the fear of feeling that they're not very good if they bring a problem to the staff room. And superintendents, your job fundamentally, like on an airplane, is to put the oxygen onto your leaders first and listen to them and create the communication channels. And much more than what we typically do when we tell them what to do, be a great listener. Think of the word triage. Your job is to help them work out priorities. Get them working together, together across schools. You'll never have a better opportunity to get your school leaders to work across schools about common problems than you have in COVID times. Well, again, great advice, and it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Greg. So that's a wrap on this episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Once again, a big thank you to Dr. John Hattie for joining us. Great conversation today about effect size and his work with Visible Learning. Be sure to check out the website at visiblelearning.com. You also want to buy the book and check out all the professional development resources they have there on the website. I also want to hear from you. So if you like this episode or got something out of the conversation, be sure to tweet us out using the Reimagined Schools hashtag. And with that, folks, as always, do what you can in your school and community 
to create better schools for kids. Thank you for listening to the Reimagined Schools podcast. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite episodes. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Greg Goins. You can also connect with me anytime via email at drgreggoins at gmail.com. So if you have a question or comment about an individual episode, or maybe you have a recommendation for future guests, I would love to hear from you. Also, anyone out there that has an interest in sponsorships on the Reimagined Schools podcast can hit me up via email again at drgreggoins at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, folks. And remember, always do what you can to create better schools for kids.